Well, to get situated, I want to say good morning. If you're uh, certainly if you came here to the house this morning, or if you're at your crib, we want to just welcome everybody. I want to begin with a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. You probably never heard me say that before because I've never begun with a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. But let's look at it. Look at it now upon the uh, the screen. I believe every church is either supernatural or superficial. I don't believe there's any middle ground. Let me make a confession to you today. Don't take it the wrong way, but I want to be a great church. I don't want to be an okay church. I don't want to be mediocre. I want to be great. Um, there's some popping going on. Is it? Is it me? Is, do I need to change mics or? Um, wanna, okay. Tell us if you do. Pause for just a moment. If you're at home, stay with us. Don't tune out. Test. Test. There we go. There we go. I don't want to be a mediocre church. I don't want to be an okay church. I want to be a great church. Again, don't take that, though, the wrong way. To what extent might you, uh, at least on initial level, agree with Leonard Ravenhill? There's, you're either one of two. You're either supernatural or superficial. In, in a few weeks, we're going to look in Revelation. That's right. And we're going to look at lukewarmness. And we're going to consider double-mindedness. And we're con- going to consider how... Uh, with God, when it comes to his church, he doesn't want us in the middle. Uh, He wants us to be on fire. And that's the kind of church that I want us to be. Last week, we started this series and we'll probably drop it uh, every week, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. I told you about my life. I told you about being a college freshman in Dallas, Texas at a Campus Crusade for Christ Christmas conference. I was in a ballroom. I was there to get a girl. I didn't get the girl, but God got my attention with Matthew 28. Go, Jesus saying, go, therefore, you have the green light. What are we waiting on? We have our mission. We have our mandate. Go and make disciples. Jesus did not say, go and draw large crowds. He didn't even say, go and have services. He didn't say, go and have schools of theology, as good as those things can be. He said, go and make, not even Christians, he said, go and make disciples. And the verbs of Matthew 28, go, baptize, teach, command, is part of what it means. So if we are going to be a great church, has nothing to do with size, but if we're going to be a great church, hear me this morning. We've got to be made up of disciples, of great disciples. But problems, holes, and pitfalls are in our way. Jeremiah 5, 31 puts it this way. Long ago, bad time in Israel's history. Israel, in some ways, like America, has had highs and lows. We're probably not at a high point of American history right now, currently. But Israel, in a time of bondage and division and desperation of captivity, here's what it said in Jeremiah 5, 31. The prophets, those are the leaders, they prophesy, they're speaking, they prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. In some English translations, it says they rule with an iron hand. They're not doing it from God. When leaders don't lead according to God's principles, things get out of whack and lots of people get hurt. There's collateral damage when leaders don't lead well. And that was happening in this nation. It's true in a family. I sat with law enforcement and a family representing wife and children this week. And a man not leading well in his home. And it breaks your heart when leaders don't lead well. When leaders aren't living a godly life. And it's true in the family. It's true in this church. It's true in the American church, and the church is being purified and being reckoned with today. 
being pruned. I believe it. And it's true in our nation. But listen, it says, and my people, look, notice the response. My people love it this way. So let's ask, us, let's ask a question. Do you want the warm fuzzies when we teach? Or do you want to be convicted to change? One more time. Do you, do you want the warm and fuzzies? Or do you, do you want to be convicted to change? Now it's like, what, 32 degrees outside? So maybe you do want the warm and fuzzies today. Or do you want to be convicted to change? This morning, I want us to look. Last week, we looked at discipleship. And y'all may know we were in 2 Peter chapter 1. And, and Peter writes there, and he says, hey, add to your faith virtue. And add to your virtue knowledge. And add to your knowledge uh, self-control. And add to self-control steadfastness. And add to steadfastness godliness. And add to godliness brotherly affection. We need some brotherly affection, right? Chris Farley and Tommy Boy. Brothers don't just shake hands. Brothers hug. We need some hugging when the, when the virus is gone, right? That's what we need. We add to that. Add to that brotherly affection. Ultimately, add love. But, but Peter, to the church there, he said he began all that by saying, grace grace and peace and we looked at that anybody remember we said grace is possible we said grace is necessary it's grace that saves you that changes you that sustains you the do it yourself some of your good diy guys on the weekends at home you can do it yourself i cannot some of you can but to earn your salvation look we said god's not against effort but he's against earning and you can't do it yourself you and i need grace we need grace, and grace is possible, and grace is necessary, and growth in grace is gradual. Can we extend grace to each other? Let me ask you, can, can you extend grace to each other? Like, I want some grace from me. I just don't know if I want to give grace to you. And there's the breakdown. And that's why a lot of churches are superficial. That's why a lot of Christians aren't really disciples. They're just counterfeit fake Christians. And that's why we can look at the internet and go, there are 245 million people of out of 328 million people in America who self-identify as Christians. And you know what? I get that. I see that. I'm not surprised by that. But disciples, those who are growing, and Peter says, add to your faith, add. But the cool thing is, it's his divine power. It's in partnership. Just like the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he says, lo, I am with you always. And one of my friends says, that low is a real high because we don't have to do it ourselves. Jesus is saying, I'll be with you. Everyone been given a job where they're like, all right, here's your job. All right, peace out. I'll check in with you later. You're on your own. That's not the Great Commission. We're in partnership with God. It's a partnership, and he is with us, and he will be with us. Do you want the warm and fuzzies, or do you want to be convicted to change? You want to hear the hard word and respond to it. So grace, grace, grace. That's what we talked about last week. Grace is organic. Listen, grace, growth in grace, it's organic. It's not a straight line. It's not, it doesn't move up to the right all the time. It's not the same methods for everybody. Isn't that freeing? I think it was really free, freeing last week to think about, either to learn that or be instructed. You struggle with sins that I don't struggle with. You learn from God in ways I don't learn from. We're dealing with different things. And so God's not going to use the same methods for all people. And we see that in his word. And we can look around and see that. And again, that extends, is a reason for us to be able to extend grace to each other. So last week we focused on grace. It's organic. It's observable. Hebrews 12 says, let, don't let anybody miss the grace of God. And there's a warning after that. Does anybody remember? If you miss the grace of God, a root of bitterness will spring up. Oh, and you're talking about shallow church. You're talking about a church that's bad or mediocre. Just let bitterness take root. Let that take root in your family. 
Man, as a leader in my family, in this church, I want to have the hard conversations. I want to sniff it out. I want to smell it out. I want to talk about it. I want to experience grace so that I can express it to other people. And I don't want anybody to miss out on the grace of God. Sometimes some of y'all talk to me, hey, you know about so-and-so. You know what they're doing. You see what they're doing. You see how they're acting. Look, let's extend grace. We'll drop some truth, but let's extend grace because God's doing different works in different people's lives. So that was last week. This week, I want to say two things about making disciples, about being disciples. And here's the first one. A great disciple, we're going to call it that, a great disciple understands, or great disciples understand the cost. And I want us today to look at Luke chapter 14. We're going to read a handful of verses there. If you're at home and you have a Bible, you got it ready, brought one today, you know what to do, put it in your lap and read along with us, Luke 14. And it's on the screen for everybody else. But look, Great disciples understand the cost. Before we read this, I just want to say Jesus is not a used car salesman. Let's look at it. Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, turning to the disciples. So hold on for a second. He looked away from the crowd. He wasn't charmed by the crowd. He wasn't elevated by the crowd. He didn't live for the crowd. He turned to the disciples and he said, teaching moment, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, a whole bunch of them were, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish or suppose a king is about to go to war now it's getting serious against another king it's on won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 if he is not able he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace can't win this fight don't fight it if you can't win it in the same way, those of you who do not ready, give up everything you have. You cannot be shallow Christians. Yes, you can. You cannot be my disciples. I want our church to move away from superficiality into supernaturality. To see God work deeply in us. But we'll have to give everything up. Now, hold on, because I want grace to abound even today, even talking about counting the cost. Because great disciples, what are we saying? Great disciples understand the cost. Years ago, we um, were looking for a new car. We went to a, a CarMax place in South Florida, and we knew someone who hooked us up, so we got to drive the thing for a week. And the salesman on the lot was an interesting fella. And he gave us a, a midsize SUV, but didn't tell us it had the worst MPG of any midsize SUV in all the world. They don't even make these vehicles anymore. And it was so bad after a couple of days, like we thought someone was at night was siphoning. We didn't have a garage or carport. We thought someone in Coral Gables, Florida was siphoning the gas out of our car. I mean, it was just going, it was going fast. We were riding around that thing. And it, it sounded like the rods were, just, it started to shake and like the rods were about to hit on the engine. And man, we didn't buy that car. And here's the thing about a bad car salesman is they're worried about the transaction 
They're not wanting to talk to you about the cost on the back end. They want you to like the vehicle, so they're going to promote all the benefits so that you'll make the purchase and get off the lot. Now, they're not necessarily evil people, but you know what I'm saying. They want the transaction to be done. And as I said, they're not worried about the cost on the back end. Jesus, you see clearly, Jesus wanted the crowds to understand the cost of following him. What do you think that might have done to the crowd? you think that thinned the herd a little bit? So for us, let's take those two words that start in Luke 14 under this heading of great disciples understand the cost. The two words, large crowd. Are we enamored with large crowds? How about Americans? Don't we love some large crowds? At the beginning of COVID, I was worried. Can I say that? And I talked to a few pastor friends and they were really worried. They're, they're worse than me. They were more worried than I was worried. But in a meeting that we were praying and one of them said, you know, if you look at the life of Jesus, this is so profound. I wish I could think of things like this. This pastor friend of mine, he said, Jesus worked with 12. He really got close to three. He sent out 70 and he told riddles to the crowd. Okay. But we're enamored with large crowds. Let's just pretend that something crazy happened and we just, man, this place blew up and we built a, a new building or no, it, was so, it just blew up so much we couldn't contain people. We had to go over to Coach Prime's house located a mile and a half from here, the JSU facility. We had to have church services over there because thousands of people were showing up. 40,000 people were showing up. How would we respond? Any guesses? Man, we would be like, that would be like a badge of honor. That would be a trophy. There would be superlatives. We would be like, large crowd, look at us. But Jesus wasn't caught up in it. Jesus never said, as I've said, he never once said, go and make large crowds. What he said was go and make disciples. And Jesus says that a disciple, stay with me, is called to give up everything. Raise your hand, even if you're at home, still, still asleep, still awake. Raise your hand if that's a little intimidating. You gotta give up everything. What are, if you're not raising your hand, you're, you're not playing along. But, in, 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 does that intimidate you? To, to give up everything. So there's a cost, there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to moving away from the crowd into more of an intimate circle of following Jesus. What is that cost? What is that giving up everything? Because honestly, that's intimidating. It's still intimidating. Like I've been a disciple for a whole bunch of years. I've identified as a Christian for a long, long time, many, many decades now. But it still intimidates me to think about giving up everything. But that's the call. The call is to give up everything. I want to read to you an email I got this week, adjusting to this microphone here. Just a few days ago, someone sent me this. So somehow, I will try to keep this uh, confidential, somehow Blank and I, my friend, convinced me to start working out at 5 a.m. at Fondren Fitness. That sounds like a New Year's resolution, doesn't it? Maybe I'm a sucker for New Year's resolutions. Who knew? I didn't realize that we'd be working out in our own church's gym. I'm only a few workouts in, but I'm already able to see the impact that the church has had on the regular attendees of the class. They're able to continue working out safely. These are mostly working moms and a dad who have never, who have no other time to devote to their own health other than at 5 a.m. 
The 5 a.m., I keep saying 5 a.m. because it's utter foolishness to wake up this early. The 5 a.m. hit class is a tiny community. The people that show up three times a week at 5 a.m. know each other and hold each other accountable to do it. They push each other. The coach is an encourager. She knows each person in the class and their abilities and coaches them through their weaknesses. If you don't show up, she's going to call you. Exercise is crucial to physical and mental health, so opening the gym has allowed me and these ladies and one man to preserve the temple in order to better serve Christ, our families, and our communities. I'm proud of our church and those that had the foresight to see how beneficial the gym could be to our fondren. I cannot wait to see how it will continue to be used in the coming years. A couple things. Number one, there's a cost if you're going to get, if you're going to get in shape. There's a cost for my friend and her friend and six or seven other people. It's 5 a.m. right behind me. That's early. That's like waking up probably at 4.30, 4.40. For me, it'd be 4.57 a.m. But 5 a.m., that, that's early. There's a cost to getting in shape. Would you agree? There's a cost to anything that you do to take your life to the next level. And there's a cost for us to say there's a raggedy old building that's been in disrepair and let's invest finances and let's get a plan and let's bring it up to code and let's invest in it so that it can be used in our, to our community. So safe social distancing and people honoring the temple and working out accountability, getting called out, just a beautiful thing. There's a cost to anything worthwhile. There's a cost to you getting in shape. There's a cost to us as a church to bless and love and serve our community, right? There's a cost to everything. A friend of mine, childhood friend of mine, uh, Joey, is a, a, just a, a great dude. And I remember when we were nine years old, we played on a little baseball team, Robinson Truck Line. They no longer exist. The team doesn't keep in touch, just Joey and I. One of my best friends growing up. Joey was a great athlete, and I, I knew some stuff was special about him when he was just nine years old. I went to his house after a practice or game one day, and Joey, in his house, at the back of his house, he had his own batting cage. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, I would go home and play Donkey Kong or something, and he was, he was taking swings and cuts, working hard. He had a dad that pushed him a little bit, but he loved baseball, and he wanted to get good. Joey went on to play college baseball. I went on to play church softball. Got a few trophies, but nonetheless. Man, here's the thing about Joey today. You know what Joey is today? He's a doctor. I see a few doctor shout-outs to y'all. That ain't easy, right? you got to count the cost. You can't become a physician without counting the cost. And Joey counted the cost. And here's the thing. He's been a doctor and a, a, a successful doctor for many, many years. He's old like me. But not long ago, I was with him and we we're at a coffee shop. And Joey had medical books and note cards. And he was working things through, learning the newest stuff, the latest stuff. He wanted to get better and better and better. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to wanting to get better. Now, look at the stories, plural, the stories of Scripture. Nehemiah built a wall and th- rebuilt a wall and thus a- saved a city. Esther risked her life and confronted a king that could have killed her. David fought a giant named Goliath. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Joseph spent all those years in prison. Jesus went to a cross to reconcile the world to himself. And somehow we think God's looking at us today going, all right, they did all that. Now you just go and live successful lives. Have safe, respectable careers because they did all that. Now you just coast. And maybe that's why we have 245 million Americans who identify, self-identify as Christian. But we're not having the impact on our world that we need to. 
And Jesus loved the crowd. He looked to the crowd. Don't, you know, don't draw a false narrative. Don't, don't make it a, a, a mistaken dichotomy. Jesus loved the crowd and called the crowd to himself. And he, his heart uh, broke for the crowd. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, he, he, Matthew 9, he, he was moved to compassion. But Jesus looked away from the crowd to the few. And he knew the guys, this ragtag group of non-religious fools and fishermen and such. And they would change the world. And Jesus called them to count the cost. And that's the role of a disciple. To be a great church, we've got to be made up not of fake Christians, not of nominal or superficial Christians. To be a great church, we need great disciples. And a great disciple, great disciples understand the cost. The second thing this morning I want to say to you is this, that great disciples experience change. So moving away from the truth of Luke 14 to Matthew 13, Again, at home or here, if you want to flip in your Bibles from Luke back, a couple of gospel narratives to Matthew, from Luke 14 to Matthew 13, a great disciple, great disciples understand um, the cost, and then the great disciples experience change. Now, before we read this, let me say this of what we're about to read is a parable. I bet a lot of you've heard of it in some ways. If you've been around here, you've heard me either teach it directly or refer to it. But Jesus told a lot of parables. He told stories about the good Samaritan and the great banquet and the prodigal son and the lost son and the lost coin and the lost sheep and the net. And he went on and on with parables, the, the, the hidden treasures, the pearl of great price, the, the, the ten talents, the ten virgins, on and on and on. But of all the great memorable stories and parables that Jesus told, this is the only parable where Jesus tells us that if you don't get this one right, you're not going to understand any of them. Now, do I have your attention? Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such, here we go, large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and and ate it up, and some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because the other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, what's happening here? Jesus, I mean, what is this? I mean, how can you even have a hundredfold? What is the truth of the story. We see from Matthew 13, 1 to 8, we're going to skip to verse 18 and read a few from there. But in the middle there, the disciples hear Jesus' teaching and they do what I wish we would do more of. They ask him what he meant. Find a pastor, find a mentor, find somebody that can pour into your life. I've said this just recently. I will say it again. Find a church, I hope it's Fondren, where you, you have someone to learn from somebody to learn with, and somebody to teach. And make sure someone is pouring into you and ask them questions. Find somebody, and hey, and one of the great questions that we need to ask, and spiritual pride prevents this from a lot of people. We, we prevent ourselves from asking for help when we need it. Men, look at me. You need to ask for help. And we need to ask for clarification. Hey, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Hey, pastor, pastor, look, the scripture says this. What do you mean by that? Send me that email. I'll pass it on to John Wood, Daniel Wagner, Nick Crawford, some of these guys. Hey, what, what do you mean? 
What, what does this mean? And the disciples ask that question. That's part of discipleship. If you want to go deep, ask questions and ask that question. What does it mean? Not just what does it say, but what does it mean? And so now let's skip to, I believe, verse on down. Got that other part. Nope. All right, I'll start there. See, we go. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. There we go again. Interesting, isn't it? After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And we're not on the same page. Okay. Jesus describes the parable here, and I'll find it somewhere. Here we go. Working the kinks out of the new year. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. So they ask, what does it mean? Jesus tells them. This is verses 18 on down. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once and receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Ever known that? Ever seen that? The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sold. So this passage, Jesus, the disciples are asking, Jesus, you said all this. You told us this story. But what do you mean by this story? If we don't get this one right, we're not going to get any of the other stories that you're telling us right. And so Jesus breaks it down. And for you, I want to put it this way to help us understand it. There are three forms, three uh, types of counterfeit Christianity. Three types of counterfeit Christianity. The first we want to call shallow Christianity. And shallow Christianity is, as we've seen there, it's the ones right there that were just uh, on the path, okay? This is, this is where you're going. This is, this is where you're walking. And on that path, they hear it, Jesus says in his story. They hear it, but they don't really understand it. And what happens? It gets snatched away. God's work in your life can be snatched away. You hear, you don't understand. There's a lack of receptivity. There's a lack of seriousness in applying it. And because of that, man, it just gets snatched away just like that. So there's a one form of... Counterfeit Christianity is a shallow Christianity. The second form that I put to you from this parable in Matthew 13 that Jesus told is an emotional Christianity. And this is the rocky ground. The rocky ground, the seed is sown. You know, the seed is the teaching about the kingdom. The soil, metaphorically, is your heart and mine. And Jesus is saying, hey, this rocky ground, this, this emotional type of Christianity, it hits the rocky ground. And what happens? There's joy. There's joy at first. There's joy. You get excited. You experience some joy. But what happens? It's, there's no roots. It's, it's not deep. And even though there was emotional high, there's going to be emotional low because it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't last. Uh, in time, it doesn't yield fruit. And it's over. A third form of counterfeit Christianity that, that I want to talk to you about briefly is worldly Christianity. And here, now there's three narratives the gospel gives, three of the four that share this parable. And Luke, I like how he puts it. There's sort of a trifecta that they hear the word, but the cares of this world, 
the lust of other things, and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. That's what can get you. The cares of this world, the lust for other things, and the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus, as a good shepherd, is pointing out. He's warning what can keep us. He's, he's telling us, early follower of Jesus, named Paul, would tell us, test yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And the world is going to try to snatch it from you. The world is going to try over time to take that from you. Shallow counterfeit Christianity, emotional counterfeit Christianity, worldly counterfeit Christianity, and that's the thorns. That's when life, do you feel that way? Do you feel like you got cobwebs, you got kudzu growing, you've just got all this stuff, and it just doesn't seem to make sense, and it's choking God's word out in your life. And Jesus says, the shallow stuff, the emotional stuff, the worldly stuff, I want to warn you of that because you're going to miss out. You're going to be superficial and you're going to fall away and the evil one is going to have his work in your life. Look, I want that for you. I don't want the evil one to have his way in your life. Last week, I quoted from the first song, blessed, happy is the person who doesn't, notice the progression, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So there's, there's the walking, there's the standing, and there's the sitting. There's a, another progression in this story, this teaching of Psalm 1. It's the guilt, the condition of guilt. It's this spirit of, of wickedness that ultimately leads to a mockery of God. You see that? So you walk and then you stop because you're standing, but you're standing, but then you sit. And a lot of us are sitting in front of the news media and social media, and we're taking it in hour upon hour, day after day, and it's stirring up in you anger and dissension, and it's not making you more fruitful. It's choking out the word of God in your life. But there's an alternative. We can meditate. The alternative to shallow, emotional, worldly Christianity is for us to watch where we walk and watch where we stand and be very, very careful when we sit down. And when we sit down, we need to be planted. In Psalm 1 that I referred to last week and now, Psalm 1, what's the difference between a godly person and an ungodly person? If we're asked that question in a small group around the circle, around the table, we may say, well, we may start listing sins. Well, you know, this for the godly and this for the ungodly. But the difference, according to the psalmist, is one thing. Where you plant yourself. Where are you planted? And you know, there's a cost to planting. There's a cost to that. But the way that we change is planting ourselves and receiving his word and hearing it and being changed by it. What could be shallow in your life? What could be just emotional? What could be very, very worldly? And all of us are in that battle. But where are we planting ourselves? A transformed disciple, great disciples experience change. They experience transformation. And it's going to come to the extent that you and I plant ourselves, hear and receive his word, and respond instantly. When Jesus calls, when the Holy Spirit prompts, do what he says when you can. Right then, take that step. Because the heart will harden and the lust of this world the cares of this life, the lust of other things, the deceitfulness of riches will come in and choke out that word. And it'll lead to unfruitfulness. Here's the thing about this parable in Matthew 13. Jesus isn't saying, stand there and go, grow seed, grow, grow seed, grow. 
The goal is not even growth. The goal is fruit. And we partner with God. We plant ourselves and receive his word and then in obedience. Listen, we've been debating for nine, ten months now what's essential and not essential. Some of us strutting, you know, strutting our tail feathers like a peacock. Man, we are essential. Some of us are hanging out at home in depression. Well, we're not essential. Well, here's what's essential for us. For a disciple, obedience is essential. Hearing that word and doing something about it. Look quickly at Revelation 21, because when we talk about great disciples understand change, I want us to talk about briefly this change that God desires. It's a change from old to new. Now, we have an obsession with new things, don't we? We have an obsession with new cars and new clothes and new hairstyles and all this stuff. I was with a friend today, he, uh, yesterday. He's talking about it the way he's growing his beard, a different, a different angle. His hairstyle I said, do it like this, not this. Like this is the end thing. Like we just, just subtle little line here, but like he's excited about how he's growing his facial hair. It's a, it's a new thing. We love new things. We love uh, rookies and sports. They're new. It's, it gives us a uh, new life. God, don't let it surprise you is obsessed with new as well. Look at Revelation 21. It makes a promise that God is making all things new. Not he's gonna make things new. Stay with me. God is making all things new. Revelation 21, I think we got it. Uh, then I saw a new heaven. There we go. Four times you'll see this word new in just a couple of verses. Saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God and himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything. Say it, church. I am making everything. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. I've told this story or part of the story from a different angle I'll take the other angle today but when I was young I got a jeep and I had worked to to save to get money for this jeep and it was an old jeep cj7 wrangler had dual headers on the exhaust it was really awesome it was a soft top and I was just so proud of this jeep but what I did when I got it is I added to it I added to the Jeep as time went on. So this old Jeep, I would put new parts on them. I, I wouldn't, but I'd have somebody do it because I can't do nothing with cars. And I just, I took the Jeep to a friend and I would get new tires. I would get new grill. I would get new cover for the back uh, spare tire. I got a new top. I, on and on, I added to it. And I remember the joy of a new Jeep driver as a young man with my friends because cars and Jeeps are really important to guys, apparently. And I remember that. That's not who I am now. Uh, I buy other people cars. But back then, man, this was my ride. This was my Jeep. So old became new. And when I would pull up, when I would pull up, my friends, my peers, the people that I longed to gain their approval, they'd be like, hey, man, that, is that new? That, that's looking good, man. You got all these new things. And I love that. And pardon this for a moment, but I want my life to look like that Jeep I used to have. I want new things to be added to the old. I want new things to be added. I want you to see in me the person I am today is not the person I was last year. 
I want you to see growth in me. The ultimate goal of Matthew 13 in that parable is not to say, go seed, go, and even grow, 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 but it's to bear fruit, to see things that honor God, that bring peace to us, and that bring peace to other people. You see, when Jesus is working on me, who benefits from that? The people closest to me. Other people as well, but the people closest to me. I want my life to be that way. And notice in Revelation here, the end of it all, this promise, and God is saying, John is saying, hey, it's to the thirsty. It's to the thirsty. A great disciple, put it this way, I think we have it on the slide. A great disciple is a thirsty disciple. Think, if you will, of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you're a note taker, write that down. Write down pure in heart. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So write that down, right? Pure in heart. And then write hunger and thirst. On one side, if you are a note taker, write this down on the left side of your page. Write the word attends. And then to the right of that, draw a line and to the right of it, write the word absorbs. Attends and absorbs. So on one side, attends. Attends church two hours a month. Write that down if you want. Attends church two hours a month. And then over here to the right, absorbs, absorb, write this, absorbs 150,000 ads and images a day. Now think about that for a second. You may see where I'm going, maybe not. But if you attend church for two hours a month, what's that going to do for you? Maybe, maybe something. But attending something two hours a month versus absorbing 150,000 ads and images a day. Now what are ads designed to do? God's not against marketing. I'm not throwing any of you marketers under the bus. But marketers, marketing is designed, marketers create ads, and ads are designed to, here, let me go deeper. Yes, buy stuff you don't need. Before that, though, these smart women and men, they go to school, they learn the art of manipulation, and these ads, these images that are thrown at us fast and furious and fiercely, these ads are designed to create discontentment and envy. Usually both. And in that, we get the message, okay? Now, that's the materialistic things that can choke out God's word in our lives. We get that. But these ads that are thrown at us, the way that they are, number and ferocity, these ads communicate that what's on the outside of us is what counts. But Jesus, when he talks about blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he cares mostly because he's going to change you from the inside. When your heart is pure and you long for it, when you're really thirsty, because here's the thing, note takers on the left side, write down external righteousness, external righteousness, and then draw a line and write down inward grace, external righteousness and inward grace. External righteousness teaches us to live this way. See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. I got to be righteous. I got to make sure that people see me as a righteous person. Churches are good at producing those types of people. Hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. The pastor preached a pretty, you know, hell and brimstone sermon today. And so that's, I got to leave here and I got to hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I don't want y'all around evil, but let me tell you something better. Let me tell you the Jesus way. Over here, external righteousness, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Over here under internal grace, right, desire 
no evil. And that's it. One writer put it this way, outward piety without inward purity is the definition of hypocrisy. Let me tell you the the, the thing that, according to Jesus, the thing that can change it all for you is your thirst and your hunger. It's your desires. What is it that you want? What is deep in you that you want? What do you desire? And that's the work. That's the work he can do. Back up for a second. Two things as we close. You guys make your way up. I'll stop talking in a second. Two things about being a great church. We're not going to be a great church. We're going to be continue to move forward in superficiality if we're not careful. But to be supernatural, to be great, we've got to learn from him. And great disciples understand the cost and great disciples experience change. When we looked earlier at Luke 14 about giving up everything, can I tell you, grace can help you do that. His divine power, the God who's always with you, can help you give up everything. We get a little taste along the way when we write checks and give up money, when we show up at a gym and work out early. But to do anything great, you've got to give up. There's a cost to it. And Jesus is not interested in pleasing the crowds. He's interested in making disciples and calls us to do that as well. So here's what I tell you about giving everything up. It's a joy to do that. Can I tell you, tomorrow's my anniversary. 26 years I've known her, 24 years we've been married. Next year's going to be huge, babe. Go to Tupelo, see Elvis's birthplace. She's always wanted to do that. Listen, when you give up your marriage, can I tell you? When you give up your marriage to God, when your marriage is not your own, when your marriage exists to bring him glory, oh, the joy. And you can do it. When you give your job over to him. You see, there's a cost to following, but there's a cost to not following. When you give up the offenses, when you've been wronged and you're able to turn those over and say, hey, I can, I can confront that, I can challenge it, I can work through that, I can forgive. Whether it's your marriage or your job or your offenses, the things that have wounded you, you can give everything to him. There's a cost in following him and it's giving him everything. But there is a cost to not following him. And so I want to ask you in love today, do you want to stay where you are? Do you? If you say, yes, man, that's great. I mean, I, I want what you're having. I want to know the secret. But is there something in you that says, I don't want to stay here? Would you stand and let me pray for you? God, would you create in us, every leader here, every servant, every body that calls this their home, would you create in us a desire to see you work greatly in our midst. Lord, would you move us away from being enthralled with crowds and superficial stuff and into a life where we share together, where we're with you. We call for your presence and experience your manifest presence and we call it out in others in grace and we're seeing, we're seeing young and old and men and women alike adding to their faith virtue and knowledge and godliness and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love and these things are added 
like parts on a car and there's a newness and a freshness and a brightness. Lord, would you help us to give up what's holding us back? The idols that promise so much but leave us imprisoned. I pray today you help some walk away for every willing heart, everyone that's thirsty, that you help us walk away from things we thought would bring us what we needed, but it's held us back. Thank you for the thirst that you're creating in our midst. God, honor, be honored as we sing, as we close today. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.